Well, good morning, Mosaic Church. This is Pastor Brett, and I'm recording this from my home this morning. With us having to cancel services today due to Hurricane Harvey and the fact that we have no power at our facilities, our leadership team thought it would be a good idea to still get the sermon into your hands so that you and your family or friends can still gather together and worship. After all, the church is not a building. It's you and it's me. It's the people of God. And no hurricane or power outage can keep us from worshiping Jesus together. I hope you enjoy. Our scripture reading today comes from Acts 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. When the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. We've been working our way through the book of Acts over the summer, and we've spent the last few weeks in this series called The Trial of Your Life, looking at the many trials that the Apostle Paul faced as he set out on his missionary journey, and how, when we see Jesus and his gospel rightly, it can stabilize and carry us through the trials we face as well. But we began our study in another series that we titled The Best is Yet to Come, where we looked at the first half of the book of Acts. And how from the birth of the church, God has been calling people from different cultures and ethnicities and age groups to come together under the name of Jesus to form a new kind of community that would reflect who he is to the world by loving God and loving one another. And honestly, that's why it's been so difficult for me to watch what's been going on in our nation as of late. 
As I see situations like Charlottesville, my heart is so full of hurt and fear and what I hope is a righteous anger because it's an assault on God's design and God's desire for humanity. It's not the world I want my kids or my friends to have to live in. See, racism stands in direct opposition to the truth that we're all made in God's image. It denies that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet all are offered salvation by the reconciling, redeeming, sin-conquering blood of Jesus. See, that kind of hate and that kind of prejudice is wrong. It's not just morally wrong. It's not just politically wrong. It's theologically wrong because it has no place in God's kingdom. It is sin, plain and simple. It was sin in the U.S. in the 1860s. It was sin in Germany in the 1940s. It was sin in South Africa in the 1950s. It was sin in Birmingham, Alabama in the 1960s. It was sin in Rwanda in the 1990s, and it is still sin today in 2017. And as members of God's kingdom, I hope that we can all agree that this is something we will not choose to tolerate or ignore. But as frustrating and as hurtful as it has been to see all of this, I know that I shouldn't be surprised when I see that kind of hate. Because we live in a broken world, a world where man wants to be his own God rather than fulfill the purposes of the one true God. It's a world full of storms. It's a world full of shipwrecks. And those shipwrecks hit us as individuals and they hit us as a nation. And yes, they even hit us as a church community. So many of us are hurt and scared and angry. And in a church as diverse as this, it's possible to feel alone or misunderstood as you process through those emotions. And if we don't know how to navigate through those storms, then it can begin to threaten to wreck our ship as well. And so the question we must ask ourselves today as we come to the close on the book of Acts is this. How can we know that the best is yet to come in the midst of the trial of our lives? I think our passage today can give us the answer to that question as we look at this story through three lenses. I want to look at the origin of storms, the power of friendship, and the heart of salvation. Now, Luke, the author of Acts, is on this boat with Paul, and he tells us at the beginning of this two-week voyage that the winds were against them. He says a week into the voyage, the winds had picked up and the voyage had become dangerous, at which point Paul warns them that if they continue on, there's going to be great loss of the ship and possibly even their lives. But they continue, and within a day or two, they find themselves caught, much like we do today, in a full-blown hurricane. Now, here's what this passage tells us about the origin of storms. See, storms come from three primary sources. Number one, they come from the circumstances that are beyond our control. See, no one on this ship caused or could have prevented this storm from happening. It resulted simply from warm air and cold water, which produced a low pressure front. There wasn't anything they could have done to stop it. See, for us, it's the medical diagnosis you didn't see coming. It's the loss of a job that you weren't prepared for. It's the untimely death of someone that you love. It's those moments when life hits you hard. Now, Pastor Donnell talked about these moments last week and how we need to see Jesus is by our side in those moments. That's not what I want to focus on today. You can go listen to the podcast from last week for that. What I want to look more closely at are the other two origins of storms, because I think this is where many of us are looking for answers. The second origin of storms are the choices that we make. So there is plenty of warning for these guys to know better than to set sail. I mean, they could feel the wind. They could sense the atmosphere. Paul told them it wasn't going to end well, and yet they kept going. And Luke tells us the reason why they kept going in verse 11. 
He says, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Now, as we'll see in just a moment, the centurion named Julius and Paul actually had a powerful relationship. But in this moment, Julius lets something else drive his decision making. See, they're on a vessel carrying cargo and fishing tackle, which means it's a commercial vessel. And to stay put would have cost them money. It would have cost them their jobs. It would have cost them their status within their culture. And like the movie The Perfect Storm, their greed and their pride and their insecurities drove them to make an incredibly foolish decision. Luke tells us there are 276 people on this ship. And yet the decision to sail into the storm is made by these two men, the pilot and the owner. Men who are in a position of power. Men with a cultural advantage over the other 274. Men who are blinded by that power and instead of seeing the other, others as men who also had families and homes and, you know, probably didn't want to die either. They saw them simply as a means to help accomplish their own end of making money and maintaining power. See, the pilot and the owner made a choice motivated by greed and privilege. And in the end, they end up losing the very things that they had put their hope in. And though we would probably never like to admit it, I'm pretty sure that every person listening to this podcast at some point in life has made a choice like that that has led you into a storm as well. It could be the comment you posted on Facebook from the safety of your own computer. It didn't matter who it hurt because you had a point to make and you had an identity to defend. Or maybe it was your response to that person's post that you knew wasn't going to bring about reconciliation. But you also had a point to prove and an identity to defend as well. Or maybe it's that thing you said to your spouse when you felt hurt or rejected. Or maybe it's that financial decision you made because you thought that material thing would make you feel all better, even though it was going to bring stress and pressure to your family. The point is this. When we let our fears and our lusts and our pride lead our decision making, you can rest assured we're sailing our ship right into the heart of a hurricane. And we're taking others with us. Our kids, our spouses, our friends, our church family, people who bear God's image right alongside of us. See, there are consequences to the things that we say and the things that we do and the things that we think. And those choices will lead to storms in our lives. There's a third origin of storms. It's the choices others make that affect us. See, in this passage, Paul and the others were carried into the storm because of a choice made by two men. The children we support at Casa Vallado in central Mexico, they didn't choose for their parents to abandon them. My friend who's homeless, he didn't choose for his wife and his daughter to be killed in a drunk driving accident 10 years ago. So you may not have chosen for your spouse to leave you. You may not have chosen for your boss to pass you over for that promotion. You may not have chosen for that person to make that comment that made you feel robbed of your God-given dignity. See, no one listening to this chose to have white supremacists hold a rally in Charlottesville a couple of weeks ago. Yet it has caused a storm. Not just in our nation, but within the hearts of many people of all colors in the Mosaic Church community. Fear, anger, self-preservation, pulling back from much-needed conversations. We didn't choose for those things to happen, but now we found ourselves in the midst of hurricane winds. But here's what we need to remember. Regardless of where the storm originates, Jesus is still on the throne. And every storm that happens is because God has either caused it or allowed it. Yes, it is the consequence of a choice you made or a choice someone else has made that affected you. But God is not caught off guard. He's allowing those storms because through them, 
He is working out something far greater than we could ever imagine. And see, Paul got that. That's why he could write things like Philippians chapter 4 and 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, where he says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, these are letters that Paul's writing in the midst of all these trials we've been reading about over the last few weeks. But Paul understood that God had used his own choice to persecute Christians to bring him to a place of becoming a Christian. He saw that through all the persecution and imprisonment and assassination attempts on his own life, that God was using those things to demonstrate the surpassing worth and glory of Jesus in his life. See, Paul knew that even though the trials he was enduring were at the hands of other men, God was still standing as the sovereign Lord over every storm. And that's why in the middle of this storm, Paul can stand with confidence and peace and say in verses 22 to 25, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. See, Paul is saying this to the very men who got him into this situation, to the very men who have treated him unjustly, to the very men who, from a cultural perspective, he should have resented and hated because he knew that though other men had gotten him into this situation, it was the Lord of creation that was going to see him through it. So what carries the children of Casa Vallado in Mexico through their storms? It's the women who care for them. It's knowing there are people in Austin, Texas who pray for them, who sacrifice their money for them, who visit them in their time of need. What has helped my friend walk through the storm of losing his family and the alcoholism that ensued? Well, it's our Kai Street team who prays with him, who cries with him, who teaches him about the gospel. And he actually just checked himself into a three-month rehab facility because someone from Mosaic helped to make it happen. What can carry this church? and maybe even our nation through the storms of racism and prejudice that we face. Well, it's a people coming together, regardless of age, regardless of background or ethnicity or even language, showing one another that you are not alone in this storm because I am with you and God is with us. Yes, the waters may be rough, the winds may be strong, but God has given us the opportunity to weather the storm together. And to come out on the other side as a people through whom the world can see the majesty of our great God and Savior, Jesus, the Messiah. But what does it take to accomplish that? Well, point number two, the power of friendship. See, the first people Luke introduces us to in this story are Paul, a Jewish Christian prisoner, and Julius, a Roman Gentile prison guard. Two people who are at opposite ends of the cultural spectrum. Two men who should have hated one another the more culturally advantaged Roman Gentile, and the more culturally disadvantaged Jewish Christian. Now, bear in mind, this shipwreck is happening during the reign of Nero, who was the Caesar of Rome. Now, Nero was infamous for his cruelty towards Jews and Christians. This is a man who ordered Christians to be fed to lions, who ordered them to be crucified and then set on fire to be used as lamps during his wild parties. This is Rome's commander-in-chief, as it were. And so Julius, as a soldier in the Augustan cohort, would have been immersed in that cultural mindset, hatred towards Jews and Christians alike. 
And Paul, having been a Pharisee most of his life, would have grown up hating Gentiles, especially the Roman military. I mean, they were his oppressors. They were the enemy. And yet, apart from Julius's poor decision to agree to sail into the storm, throughout the rest of this story, we continually see a bond of friendship between Paul and Julius. Verse 3, it says, The next day we put in at Sedan, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Now, this was unheard of in that day, because if a Roman guard was put in charge of a prisoner, and that prisoner happened to escape, then it was the Roman guard who would be killed. And yet here we see Julius letting Paul leave to go visit his friends. Meaning this, whatever happened prior to this point to establish their friendship, it was powerful enough to cause the one who was in the place of cultural power to place his life in the hands of the one who had been culturally oppressed. But we also see the one who had been culturally oppressed, Paul, returning from that visit to see his friends, ensuring that Julius would live. We see him praying for Julius, encouraging him, protecting him, and looking out for the more culturally advantaged Roman guard. And when the ship was going down and the other soldiers sought to kill the prisoners, Luke tells us in verse 43, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. These these soldiers know if the ship wrecks and these prisoners escape, they're going to have to pay for the price with their own lives. So, and catch this, these Roman soldiers say to themselves, it would be better for those people over there to suffer and die than for us to have to give up our lives. So here's their dilemma. If they let the prisoners live and the ship wrecks, would the prisoners choose to escape knowing it would cost the soldiers their lives? See, they were faced with this fear that if they gave that kind of power to the people they had oppressed, Would those people use that power to retaliate? And faced with that choice, the soldiers decide it's too risky to give that kind of power to the men that they treated so unjustly. And instead, they decide killing them would be a safer choice. Well, all the soldiers except for one, that is. See, Julius decided to stop the soldiers. And what was it that Julius saw that these other soldiers didn't see in that moment? Well, he saw Paul's heart towards him. See, just months before being placed on this ship, Paul had written a letter to the church in Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 17, he says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, Julius saw that Paul did not respond to him or treat him like any other prisoner ever had. There was something different in how Paul treated his oppressor, and that changed things. See, Julius realized Paul saw him as a fellow man who was just as broken and just as much in need of God's grace as he was. A man who had grown up in a broken culture where it was expected that certain people should be treated a a certain way, and he was just doing what he had always known to do. And Paul didn't hold that against him. Instead, he loved him. He served him. He spoke to him as a fellow human being. See, Paul didn't see Julius as he was. 
He saw him for who God had intended him to be, a new creation, an image bearer of God. And in response, Julius's heart was softened towards Paul as well. He no longer saw Paul as his prisoner. He no longer saw him as less than. Julius saw Paul as his fellow man, a man worthy of respect and honor and trust. So because of Paul's love for Julius and Julius's response to that love, they were able to look past the color of each other's skin and see into the content of each other's character. They're able to move beyond the cultural labels and barriers and presuppositions and literally place their lives in each other's hands. And then right at the climax of the story, when Luke has us on the edge of our seats, wondering if they're going to make it, he tells us something going on in the back of the boat. Verses 30 to 32, it says, And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Now, as the ship is breaking apart and everyone is doing all they can to make it through, the sailors, the only guys who actually know how to sail this ship, decide they're going to sneak away in the lifeboats and leave everyone else to die. So picture this. You've got a pilot and an owner who got everyone into this mess trying to protect their investments and their cultural standing, seeing others simply as a means to accomplishing their own ends. Then you've got the sailors trying to sneak off the boat to save their own necks and leave everyone else to perish. And in the midst of all this selfishness and all this hate and all this prejudice stands a Jewish Christian prisoner and a Roman Gentile guard looking to serve and protect and rescue one another. And in the end, it is their care, their concern, and dare I even say their love for one another that ends up saving not only themselves, but everyone else on board as well, even those who sought to leave them for dead. Which brings us to the last point, the heart of salvation. Now, what motivated Paul to treat his cultural enemy as his dearest friend? What motivated Julius to treat Paul not as someone he was superior to, but as his equal? It was Paul's understanding that unless you stay in the boat, you cannot be saved. Let me explain what I mean. In verse 20, it tells us that the people on this ship had lost all hope of being saved after three days without seeing sun or stars. In other words, after three days of being submerged in total darkness, with all hell breaking loose, they had given up hope that their situation could ever change. But then in verse 24, Paul stands in front of them and he says, God has promised to deliver us, that God has a plan in the midst of this storm. And that plan is to carry us through because he has a greater purpose waiting for us in Rome. And Paul tells them, unless you stay in the boat, oh, unless you trust in God's deliverance, unless you stand firm on the promises of God to not only carry us through the storm, but to actually use this storm to accomplish something even greater, something we would never have imagined possible, then not only will you be lost, but everyone else on the ship is going to suffer as well. Julius, Pilate, owner, soldiers, and sailors, you must cut the lifeboats loose. You must stand in faith. You must trust God, no matter how ferocious a storm might seem, and know that my God is more ferocious than that. Now, how could Paul have that kind of faith and that kind of courage in the midst of this storm? Well, it's because over and over, when Paul experienced storms in his own life, he continually looked to Jesus, who in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the threshold of spending his own three days submerged in utter darkness of death, 
about to face the most terrorizing storm any person would ever face, the death on the cross and the loss of the perfect relationship with his father. Knowing what was coming, Jesus knelt down in the darkness in the middle of that night and he cried out in Matthew 26, 39, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In other words, God, there's got to be another way out of this storm. There's got to be a lifeboat I can escape in. Yet, Father, if staying on this ship and going through this storm is the only way for humanity to be saved, then, Father, cut the lifeboat loose and give me the strength to endure. And after three days of utter darkness, lying dead in the tomb, Jesus rose up out of the midst of that storm and stepped out into a new creation. Now on the surface, it may not have looked like much had changed, but beneath the surface, God's kingdom had begun to spread. And the fact that you and I are gathering every Sunday as Mosaic Church, as black and white and Latino and Nigerian and Japanese and Uzbekistanian and Romanian and Iraqi and on and on I could go, is proof that Jesus didn't just weather the storm of sin and death. He conquered it. And today he is putting the world back together again through his people. And in light of that truth, we, Mosaic Church, can not only stare our individual storms in the face, my prayer is we could also stare down the storms of racism and prejudice and hate that are threatening to sink the ship of our nation. And that we could say, Father, cut the lifeboats loose. We're not looking for an easy way out. We're not going to run from this storm. We're going to stay on this ship together. We're going to trust God together. We're going to look to the resurrection power of Jesus and love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of what our culture tells us we ought to be doing. And we're going to see God carry us through this storm together and through us carry this nation through the storm and come out on the other side, stepping into new creation. See, the storm may be powerful, but our God is oh so much more powerful. So God, we don't need the lifeboats. We don't need another option. We just need more of Jesus and more of each other. But you have to stop looking for your way of escape when the storm threatens to tear apart the ship that you're on. We have to cut loose the lifeboat of self-preservation and comfort and convenience. We have to cut loose the lifeboat of just sticking to people who look like us and think like us and talk like us and actually have the needed conversations with and be willing to listen to the thoughts and experiences and perceptions of those who are different. We have to cut loose the lifeboat of isolation, be willing to be part of this multi-generational, multi-ethnic, gospel-centered community that God has so graciously formed here at Mosaic. This is our ship. And when the storms come... We will not abandon it. Listen, if you're not a Christian listening to this, and if you've made choices in your life based in fear or the need for significance or the lust of your heart, and you find yourself in the midst of a storm of consequences, only Jesus can carry you through that. But you have to stop trying to save yourself. You have to cut loose the lifeboats of moralism and good deeds and, and religion and spirituality. And trust in the fact that Jesus has already conquered the greatest storm you could ever face. Simply confess your need for his grace and surrender your life to him today. But if you are a Christian and you find yourself in a storm caused by the actions or words or Facebook posts of someone else, and you keep thinking you want to abandon ship and pull away from gospel community and pull away from what God has called you to be and do, 
Well, then let me tell you this. You've got to cut loose the lifeboat of self-preservation and comfort and uniformity. And know that the same Jesus who conquered the power of death and sin, when he walked out of that tomb, is alive and well and seated on the throne of the universe today. And his spirit lives in you and it lives in me. And he lives in us as a people. And there is a whole boatload of folks in this city and in this nation who need rescuing. Let us not abandon ship in their greatest hour of need. Let us cut loose our lifeboats and weather this storm together. Father God, we come to you. We're humbled in your presence. And we thank you, Lord, that in our greatest hour of need, in our greatest storm of sin and the burden of death and wrath and Lord, all that our sin deserves, Lord, in that greatest moment, that Jesus, you came. You cut loose your lifeboats of having another way and you decided to step into the middle of the storm with us, to jump on ship with us, to bring us back to our Father. And Father, we thank you for all that you're doing here at Mosaic Church. Or the beautiful mosaic you've created as a display of your goodness and your grace. And Father, I pray that you would begin and continue to, to knit our hearts together. Lord, that as our nation faces the storms of racism and prejudice, Lord, that Mosaic Church would stand like a city set on a hill, Lord, as a beacon of hope to see that there is a way through this storm. And that way is through the name of Jesus Christ. So God, would you continue to form us and shape us as your people? Would you give us the words to speak to one another? Would you give us the ears to listen to one another? And Lord, would you give us the resolve, the courage to stand strong in the face of the storms that are ahead of us? Lord, let your kingdom come and let your will be done in this place and in this nation and on this earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.